you would join me uh, in prayer. Father, we come to you as a people with much to be thankful for. You're so good to us, uh, far greater than, than our own hearts and minds can fully comprehend. Yet we are a people who come with needs, a people who ask your guidance and direction over our government leaders that you might influence their lives, that you might influence the decisions they make, that you might cause them to understand that they serve at your good pleasure, and that their role is to serve the people and not themselves. So, Father, we pray for peace throughout the world, not just in our own country, but throughout the world. And we know that there are those ambassadors of yours taking your gospel out into the world who face dangers and difficulties, economic hardships, safety sometimes for their own lives. We ask that you would continue to strengthen and encourage them that your gospel may go forth. We pray for the church as a whole, the church around the world. We pray that she would be <clears throat> the perfect bride for your son, that she would recognize that she has been washed in his blood and that her purpose is to be his bride. We pray for our local church here, Father, that the ministry that you allow us to participate in, uh, that we would be faithful to that, that we would continue to do so, that we would minister to each other, that we would minister to those we encounter, to those with needs, whatever the need might be. But above all, that they see Jesus in us and that they might know Christ through knowing us. We have many among us who are physically sick, Father, and we pray for them. We lift them before you and ask that uh, you would comfort them and strengthen them that you would grant them physical strength and physical healing. There are those among us who are heartbroken for one reason or another, and we ask that your spirit come alongside them, wrap your loving arms around them, so that they might know that in spite of their difficulty, in spite of their grief, in spite of their difficult situation, you have not stopped loving them, that you indeed love them, at the cost of your own son's life. And Father, as we go to your word this morning, we ask that the Spirit might open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts, that we might learn the truths that you would have us to learn from your word this morning, your revelation of yourself. Father, I ask for clarity of thought, and clarity of speech this morning, that my words might glorify you and show the magnificent magnificence magnificence I can't get it out of Christ in his name we pray amen so mark's gospel that is where we are going this morning surprise we may have been there once before we're going to go to mark chapter 9 and I'm going to be reading from verses 2 through 13. Uh, you will know this story as the Transfiguration. 
as told by Mark. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And, Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Think about the last great story you took in whether it was a TV show, a movie, a book, a conversation with somebody. Sometimes stories stick with us. Good stories stick with us. And sometimes a good story reminds us of another story. Have I heard this before? Is it similar? Sometimes stories we've heard before can help us interpret the story that's in front of us. Think of the Exodus story. God's people enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt, turning straw and bricks into mud. With each step into the mud, the promises of God seeming fainter and fainter and fainter. God eventually hears their cry, and he frees them. He leads this nation along the way in the desert for 40 years, and he performs many miracles along the way. Now think about your own story. It's not as easy to figure out as somebody else's story. Why is that? Well, because we're actively living in our own story. The events are still playing out, and we're engaged in those events, busy, trying to satisfy our own hopes and dreams. We are very much, however, like the Israelites of the Exodus. We're on a journey. We are in the wilderness moving towards our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. We are on our own Exodus. I recently read a study in which the point of the study was to take a group of people and, and they're going to watch a film. And a portion of the group was told the end of the story before they watched the film. Now that group, believe it or not, got much more out of the film 
than the group that didn't know the end. And the reasons that they gave for being able to do that is because they knew the end. They didn't have to try to figure it out. So they could recall more details from the story. They didn't get caught up in trying to figure out how the story should go or how the story should end because they already knew the end. Now, my first reaction to that is, no. Uh-uh. Don't spoil the story for me. Do not tell me the end of the story. And if you're like me, you might have the same reaction. Why? We like to figure out the story. We kind of like to figure out how it should go, where it should go, where it should turn. And we want it to end the way we think it should end, don't we? You ever watched a movie that didn't end like you thought it should? Oh, that was a terrible movie. That was terrible. They had me up until the end. So. But the more I've thought about that study, the more I'm inclined to agree with the results. Maybe it is better to know the outcome ahead of time. Maybe it does make it easier that way to take in the events that get us to the end of the story. You still don't know quite how the events are going to unfold, but you can be certain of the outcome. And no matter how impossible the events make the end seem, you know the end. It's, that's how it ends. It doesn't end a different way. No more hoping that it's going to go this way or that way. Today in this story, we're going to look at a story in which many of the active characters don't see the similarity of their story to another ancient story. They don't see it because their hopes and dreams are interpreting the story for them. The problem is their hope is misplaced and they have failed to learn from the past, from the very story that's at work in their own story. Now, the original audience for this text, as you well know, back up, you and I, as well as the first readers, had the advantage of knowing how the story ends. But the characters involved, they don't know it at the time that it's happening. Now, hopefully, we will see the echoes of another story at work in this story. Who knows? We might even learn something from this story that will help us in our own story. A story that will echo from the past into our reality and help us keep our hope from being misplaced. So in our text, we find Jesus and three of his disciples about to go up a mountain where the disciples will see something truly amazing and they're going to hear a voice from heaven. And we're going to see that the spokesperson for the disciples, Peter, gives evidence of their misplaced hope. That their hopes are placed in an earthly kingdom, in a national kingdom of Israel, when in fact, ultimate hope is found in the kingdom of God. So we must elevate our true hope to the heavenly king. I'll say that again. We must elevate our true hope to the heavenly king. You'll notice our text begins with the phrase, after six days. Now that's a significant change for Mark the writer. Mark does not denote time in this gospel. What do we see from Mark? And immediately, and immediately, 
and immediately. Mark is fast-paced. He doesn't waste time with details. He's got some detail here. He only does this twice in the whole gospel. In Mark chapter 14, he references two days before the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes were plotting to kill Jesus. When a writer does something out of ordinary for them, it's significant, and we need to pay attention to that. So, the question we might ask is, six days after what? I mean, it starts out after six days. Six days from what? At Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, in response to a question from Jesus six days ago, Peter made his confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Then Jesus explains to Peter and the disciples that he must suffer and die. This is in chapter 8. This left Peter so disturbed and shocked that he does what? He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus in return rebukes him. And Jesus tells his disciples, he begins to teach them that they too must be prepared to die. If they're to be his followers, they must deny, deny themselves and take up their cross. Now one other item of interest from this opening verse is where they're going. Where are they going? Up a mountain. I don't know, have you ever heard anything about mountains in the Bible? Pretty significant, aren't they? You, you've heard that before. You might recall Abraham and Jacob both had mountaintop experiences. Noah's ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat, and they depart the ark, and God makes a covenant with them and all of creation. Mount Sinai, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, a covenant is born. Significant things happen on mountains. We should pay attention in the Bible when we see a mountain come into view. What they see when they reach the summit is Jesus is transfigured. Well, what does that mean, transfigured? Well, literally, the word is metamorphosis. Anybody, when you were a child, ever catch a caterpillar and put it in a jar or put it somewhere and it makes its little cocoon and out comes a beautiful butterfly? That's a metamorphosis. That's a physical change. So that's what the disciples are seeing. And the scriptures tell us that the garments became radiant white, exceedingly white. Mark describes it as whiter than anything on earth. What he's describing is something nobody's ever seen before. The garments are a new kind of whiteness. They represent something new with a new brilliance, a brilliance not of this realm. Another incident I want us to look at as we're thinking about this story and this transfiguration, this vision that the disciples were given. We previously made note of the after six days, so we know what that's about. Peter's confession. What happened right before that? Do you remember? There's the feeding of the 4,000. So all these people are out there, and the disciples say to Jesus, where's anybody going to get enough food in this desolate place to satisfy these people? They're in a desolate place, a wilderness, maybe even a desert. 
And Jesus provides food. He provides more than enough food. After the event, there's some discussion again about food because as they leave, the disciples forget to put food in the boat. So they're once again without food. And Jesus says to them in chapter 8, verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? After explaining it to them, they go to Bethsaida. The first thing that happens when they get to Bethsaida, the event right before Peter's confession, verse 22 says they brought a blind man to Jesus. And Jesus heals the blind man and he sends him away. And then we have Peter's confession. And the admonition that if anyone would follow him, they must deny themselves and pick up the cross. Now, all the Gospels record Jesus healing somebody who's blind. And in almost every case, the Gospel writer's record of the sight being restored is instantly, immediately. In Mark's account, account Mr. Immediately, he says... Jesus laid hands on the man twice to fully restore him. Twice. He's God. Why twice? He didn't even have to touch him. He'd just say it, right? He's God. So why twice? Mark is showing us something for ourselves. Now, we all know that the disciples seem a little bit slow on the uptake sometime. But remember, we know the end of the story. They don't. And what Mark is showing us is that our sight comes gradually. It doesn't come all at once. You can't see all the truth at one time. John tells us we couldn't take it all at one time. So their knowledge of Christ was being gradually revealed to them, just like it is us. We don't have all the answers. It takes a lifetime of discipleship to move towards those answers. Now, disciples received a glimpse of the glorified Christ at the transfiguration. They don't recognize it at the time that that's what they're seeing, but they were witnessing the glory of the resurrected Christ. His death and resurrection are still foreign ideas to them. This was the Messiah. He can't die. If he dies, how are we going to have a kingdom? The king can't die. There's no kingdom without the king. Before we move in to the rest of this story, I want to take you back one more time. You notice I keep taking you back in Mark's gospel. Because it's relevant to what's happening here. I told you they were going up the mountain and they would see something wonderful. And they're going to hear something wonderful. What do you suppose the miracle is right before Jesus restores the man's sight? Mark chapter 7, he restores a man's hearing. All of these miracles are going somewhere. They're pointing to something. They're pointing to this moment. 
In Mark 7, beginning in, in verse 31, we have the story of Jesus hearing, healing this deaf and mute man. So he gives him hearing, and he gives him the ability to speak, and then he tells him, don't tell anyone. Can you imagine that? You can't speak for your whole life. And this guy comes along, and he makes it so you can speak, and don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. That's what we were told. Now, when we go back to the mountain, we find two characters present. Elijah and Moses speaking to Jesus. Now, most commentators would agree, I agree with them, that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. And they are there with Christ. Now, they're heroic figures from the Old Testament, faithful heroic figures from the Old Testament. They both witnessed theophanies or visions of God on mountains. Both were faithful and suffered because of their obedience. They were rejected by God's people and ultimately vindicated by God. Now, as these two fade away, Jesus is left alone, confirming it's not the law and the prophets. It's I. I am the, re- I am the climax of redemptive history. I am at the center. I am here to finish what Moses and Elijah started. Now, Peter speaks in verse 5. We know Peter, he likes to talk. Wherever we see Peter, he's got something to say. And he says, it's good that we're all here. And he wants to build three tents for them, or booths, to be more precise, shelters. Now, what's he thinking? How did Peter know that that was Moses and Elijah standing in front of him? It's not like they had selfies back then. I mean, he couldn't share it on Facebook. These guys lived thousands of years before Peter, and yet he knows. He, rec- he sees that it's the law and the prophets. He doesn't understand because he wants to build shelters. He wants to prolong it. He wants to keep them there. And now maybe we're not too far away from, in the distant future in the gospel, of the journey to Jerusalem for the, for the week festival. So maybe Peter's got that in mind. So he knows it's Elijah and Moses. Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus told him, hey, look, it's Elijah and Moses. He just knows it. He's able to see it. Now Mark writes that Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus. But he doesn't tell us what they're talking about. Don't you want to know? If you're Peter, don't you want to know? What are you guys talking about? Luke tells us what they're talking about. In Luke's account, in chapter 9, Luke writes, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, if you go to Luke 9 in your Bible, it probably has a note attached to that verse that tells you that the Greek word for departure is exodus. Exodus. 
according to Howard Marshall, that can be interpreted in two ways. One speaks directly of Jesus' death, and the other harkens back to the accident event of Israel. I'm comfortable with both views being in play here, and let me show you why I think that. In our story, in the Mark story, Jesus takes three disciples up the mountain. In the Exodus story, Moses goes up the mountain on one of his trips up with three named persons. the high priest and his sons, along with 70 elders. In our story, Jesus is transfigured and his clothes become radiantly white. In the Exodus story, Moses' skin shines when he descends the mountain after encountering God. Mark, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. Exodus, God appears in veiled form in an overshadowing cloud. Our story, a voice speaks from the cloud. Exodus, a voice speaks from the cloud. Now I could go on, the list is long, but I'm sure you get it. You, you can make the connection. You're able to connect the dots. Jesus is about to begin a new Exodus. Jesus is about to begin the Exodus Isaiah spoke of in his prophecy in chapters 40 through 55. Now, that's not only visible in Mark's gospel, if you know to look for it, you can see it in all the Gospels. And you can see it in the other prophets, this new Exodus motif. It's a widely held position among scholars and theologians, not just Mike. It's not something Mike just dreamed up. It's a widely held position. Now think back for just a moment to the opening of Mark's Gospel. As it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You'll note Mark says he quotes Isaiah, but he's actually quoting from Malachi, Exodus, and Isaiah. It's a common literary technique of his time. We don't have time to develop all that. Trust me on this. He's quoting from all of those locations. So what do we have going on in the opening? John the Baptist, baptizing at the Jordan River, but where in the Jordan? Mark says in the wilderness. Jesus appears and is baptized. Jesus hears a voice from heaven. Mark doesn't tell us that anybody else heard it. Jesus hears the voice. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Then Jesus is driven out into the wilderness, to be tempted for 40 days. See, Mark is painting this Exodus picture. He's beginning to paint it very, at the very beginning. Now let's go back to Peter. Our text says he makes a statement because he didn't know what to say. And Mark adds that they were terrified. Imagine yourself in Peter's position. Pretty sure I'd be terrified. In the presence of two of the greatest Old Testament figures, Jesus is transfigured. A dark cloud overshadows them, a cloud that would later ring forth with a voice saying that everybody heard, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The second time Mark records a voice from heaven, and this time it's not just for Jesus, it's for everybody that's present. You kind of start to get the sense, looking at the Exodus story, where Moses received the tablets, the covenant, the old covenant. 
you kind of get the sense that this is giving us a picture of something new and something different. Moses and Elijah are gone, and now there's Christ, and there's a new covenant coming. Peter doesn't understand that at that time. He has no idea that all the ceremonial practices that they're about to go to Jerusalem to participate in are about to disappear because they're going to be fulfilled in Christ. So the disciples have been given a unique vision of what God is up to. The blinders have been removed for a time, yet their understanding still dim. You have to think about what their expectation of the Messiah was. They're looking for another King David. They're looking for a political figure, not God himself. And in spite of the vision they've been given, their interpretation of the vision is clouded by their hopes, by their desires. They have faulty expectations of what the Messiah has come to do and who it is. What about us? We have the advantage of knowing how the story ends. Do we live that way? Or do we live half-blind and sometimes deaf like the disciples did? Living lives with misplaced hope. How often do we misplace our hope in things that ultimately don't matter? I don't believe politics belongs in the pulpit. But everyone here knows how significant elections are in this country. They're a big deal. They really are. Especially presidential elections. A lot of things go on in an election. A lot of promises, a lot of speeches, a lot of expressed ideas. Televised debates, campaign advertisement after campaign advertisement. All with one goal in mind for us to place our hope in one candidate or one party. Candidates hope they will win the election. Hope by the faithful that their candidate will win. After all, my guy has all the right ideas. If the other guy wins, there's no hope. We're in trouble if that other guy wins. And I have to admit, I'm as guilty as anyone of placing my hopes in a political candidate. It's misplaced hope. It doesn't belong there. And when my guy doesn't win, my hopes get dashed. When we set our ultimate hope in the wrong place, we often have to face disappointment. We just do. It's okay to have hopes and dreams. I'm not saying that we shouldn't hope. Hope is a necessary thing. It's an important thing. But when it feels like life is falling apart, when you start examining the story, very often, at the root of that disappointment is misplaced hope. Because a hope that you held was not met. Instead, it was crushed. And if we're not careful, these smashed hopes can dominate our lives. 
And when that happens, we need to look at our ultimate hope. We must elevate our hope to the heavenly king. We know how the story ends. So this vision the disciples were given was for the future. It was for the not yet part of the already not yet of redemptive history. The kingdom of God was already at hand. Christ announced that upon his arrival. But it wasn't fully consummated. And for Jesus and these disciples, the worst was yet to come. They'd seen some difficult things, but they hadn't seen the worst yet. The disciples would learn that their ultimate hope is found in the kingdom of God. And when suffering comes, hope must be kept in the suffering servant king. Yes, when suffering comes, and it's coming, if you're not suffering now, you will be soon. It's coming into every one of our lives. You know, throughout this gospel, Jesus repeats one instruction many, many times. And you can probably guess what it is. Don't tell anyone what you saw here today. Don't tell anyone what you heard. In almost every encounter after Jesus performs some great miracle, he tells the people, shh, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what you saw. Don't tell anyone what you heard. In verse 9, as the group is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he tells the disciples not to relate to anyone what they had seen or heard until he was resurrected from the dead. Here's Jesus talking about death again. How can the Messiah deliver us from Rome if he dies? Verse 10 tells us they even discussed it among themselves as they come down the mountain. What does rising from the dead mean? The question they discussed amongst themselves was far more profound than they could have possibly known. The answer to that question means everything. Instead, their next question to Jesus is about Elijah. Now these guys are never too proud or embarrassed to ask Jesus anything. In the very next chapter, two of these disciples are going to ask Jesus if they can set at his right and left hand when he comes to power. Remember the parables? They didn't understand what they meant, so they just asked Jesus. What does this mean? No matter how many times Jesus questions their faith, when they had a question, they just blurted out. These guys epitomized the statement that there's no such thing as a stupid question. And yet, the most profound question they could have ever asked, the one they asked themselves, they didn't ask Jesus, the one that could answer. Instead, they ask about Elijah. They ask a question out of their Jewish hopes. Elijah must come first. The scribes say so. And Jesus answers their question in verse 12 and 13. He tells them, you're correct. Elijah does come first and restore all things. But Jesus doesn't answer from the scribes. He answers from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Not from the writings of the scribes. The words of Malachi say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their father, lest I strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And Luke writes in chapter 1, verse 16, in reference to John the Baptist, and he will turn many of the children of Israel 
to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in Jesus' answer, he's affirming Elijah's come. And he comes to prepare the way. He's coming as a messenger. But what Jesus is doing is shifting the focus away from the Old Testament Elijah to the new Elijah. Something new is coming. John the Baptist. And then ultimately to himself. Both of them are going to suffer terribly. John the Baptist and Jesus. And let's not forget, by this point, John's already been arrested. His head has already been presented on a plate to a woman, Herodias. Sound familiar? Who is Elijah continually harassed by during his ministry? A weak king named Ahab and his wicked woman Jezebel. They sought to destroy Elijah and to bring about his death. So this Elijah character the disciples are concerned with has already come in John the Baptist. And he's faced incredible suffering and ultimately his death. Jesus is tying John's suffering and death to his own pending suffering and death. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the servant who experiences rejection and is treated as an object of contempt. It underscores the misunderstanding of his role as Messiah. Now, eventually the disciples do learn how the story ends. It's in the story's ending that they found the strength to endure their own suffering, ultimately their own death and humiliation. Early readers of this gospel would soon face horrible persecution in Rome at the hand of Nero. They would need these powerful words to help them understand and to help them identify with Jesus. They could look back at the entire biblical story as they had it, including the Exodus narrative, and know that God will be faithful to his promise. They would also see that suffering, humiliation, and even death precedes our ultimate glory. There is no other road to redemption. The road to redemption ultimately leads through death. It's exactly why when suffering comes, our hope must remain firmly fixed in the suffering king. Now, I am no connoisseur of fine art. I wouldn't know a piece of fine art next to the old picture of the dogs playing cards. Just, I just don't have any background in that. But from time to time, I come across a picture, a painting, a film, something that can speak a strong message. Some time ago, I saw a picture of an old burned-out mountain shack, and all that remains is the chimney. It's a painting. And the charred debris of what was a family's life. In front of the home stood an old man dressed only in his underclothes and a small child clutching a pair of raggedy coveralls. And it's evident in the painting that the child is crying. And beneath the picture are the words the artist wrote to express to us that the old man is speaking to the child. And the words say, hush, child. God ain't dead. 
Now that picture of a burned out mountain shack, the old man, the weeping child, and those words, God ain't dead. Over and over those words return to my mind. And instead of it being a reminder of the despair that sometimes life brings our way, it comes to serve as a reminder of hope. We all need reminders that there's hope in the world. And in the midst of life's troubles and failures, we need mental pictures. We need a great story to remind us that all is not lost. Hope remains. Christ has risen from the world. He's in control of this world. And this is where our hope rests. We know how the story ends. We can't predict the events of our lives as we travel along on our own exodus. We can only watch and participate. We're not helpless to influence those events, but ultimately, each event is written into our Exodus story. And like the Exodus of Israel, the Exodus of Christ, those events include happy occasions and they include terrible, life altering events. Embrace the story. Live out your exodus to the fullest with confidence, with hope in Christ. Your story is part of the greatest story ever told. Our story takes place in the already and the not yet of redemptive history. And day by day, we're being transfigured. We're being transformed into something new. Do not live in the fear of false hope. Each event that comes into your life, into my life, passes through the hands of the Father as it enters our life. You know the end of the story. A story that has hope at its end. And it ends with you. Fully transformed in a completed Exodus story. Eternally present with Christ Jesus our King in glory. Father, we give thanks for these words. We ask that your Spirit would apply them to our heart as you see fit. Father, we ask that we may always be mindful of the hope we have through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.